This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Fossil Showman. The Zacro Master. Agreeing to Disagree. And Pamela Coleman-Smith. Although most Renaissance fairs aren't happening in 2020, you can still bring all the excitement to your table. Minus the jousting and roast turkey legs. During the month of September, our friends at Atlas Games are offering their card game Renfair at 40% off with code PANTALOONS. In Renfair, you play characters who want to have the best historically accurate costume at the fair but lack the funds to do it. Earn coins by competing challenges, then buy choice items for your own costume. Thwart your opponents by playing clashing garment items on them. Short pantaloons and a sequined halter top? Egad! Stackable transparent costume cards let you see your character's outfit and your points too. Renfair plays two to four people ages 13 plus in about an hour. Learn more about Renfair or order your copy at atlas-games.com slash Renfair. That's fair with an E. Hip, hip, huzzah! The thump of dice and the rattle of miniatures. Oh, wait a minute. These miniatures, they're bigatures. They're really large. And it looks like we've taken... Macrochers. Yeah. And it looks like we've taken about six different Ralpartha dragons and munched them all together into one awkward uh, mega dragon that is uh, dripping... Uh, a glue from the glue gun. Uh, something weird is happening, and, and it's happening due to beloved patron backer Dice Geeks, if that is your real name, who says, I would love to learn how to use Fossil Showman Albert Koch and the Missouri Leviathan in a game. And of course, this is the first in a series of requests because this, folks, is an all-request episode. Woo! So, Ken, if we didn't have the gaming hut to put this in, there would be some doubt as to what other hut it would go in. Uh, I don't want to tell people that the huts are fungible sometimes. That would be giving too much away. But at this one, it's not clear whether this would be elliptony or science or history because it sort of falls between the cracks of all of those things and therefore belongs in the gaming hut because uh, I guess Albert Koch was a, a scientist, but perhaps more the fossil showman, as he was known. He uh, arrives in America from Germany in 1835, because if he'd stuck around in Germany, if he'd found some uh, mastodon bones, he would have been required to be a sober scientist, accurately classifying things. Or to give them to the king of Saxony, or the elector, I guess he was. He wasn't a king. He shouldn't jump himself up like that, elector of Saxony. Yes, but he was. Uh, he, he came to America where there were no boundaries on how you would put a uh, mastodon together, a Missourium, as he sometimes called it, or the M Missouri Leviathan. And uh, before we turn this into something game-worthy, uh, you're going to tell us a bit more about it. Yeah, Albert Koch uh, opened a museum in uh, St. Louis called the St. Louis Museum, uh, which I guess was a good name for the first time. Then someone would have opened a second museum and there would have been a fight. So it was also called Koch's Museum. And he uh, filled it with oddments, uh, fun items, stuffed birds, live alligators, a wax figure of Andrew Jackson, 
basically everything you want in a museum. Yeah, that's your three sciences right there. That's your, right. Your avians, your reptiles, and your Jacksons. And your Jacksons. And, um, uh, and that was back when they just had the one. They didn't have the five. So he's uh, going out and finding things for his museum is his sort of impetus. And when he hears about some bones... In uh, the Missouri River, he's there at uh, Kimswick, Missouri. Uh, it wasn't Kimswick then. It was just an empty spot south of St. Louis. And uh, he dug up an enormous skull and said, this is amazing. This is great. And he thought, he thought to himself, this is probably a mastodon. He wasn't an ignoramus, Robin. But when he dug up the tusks, and all of the other parts of the mastodon that were lying there in the river, he noticed that the uh, one of the tusks stuck out sideways, not frontways, like a mastodon. And when he piled the skull on his cart to take it back to the museum, tusk didn't jiggle around. Drove it all the way from Kimswick to uh, St. Louis. Still didn't move. So he thought, well, guess it's not a mastodon. The tusk didn't jiggle. And I don't know about you, Robin, but the tusk jiggle test, that's that's an honored part of paleontology. So he said, well, if it doesn't stick out forward and be a mastodon, it must have stuck out sideways for clearing river brush because this was the Missouri Leviathan. It was an enormous creature. It was large enough that uh, you could have uh, a jug band play in its bones as indeed he did uh, at the museum. It was like a enormous hippo with an alligator's skin and a giant tail and great screaming paws and big teeth. And it was a, a, a legitimate Bible monster that lived in Missouri, because where else would you live if you're a monster that symbolizes the hatred of God for man? Yes, it's the, the, the show me a biblical monster state. Exactly. And so um, uh, he puts it all together and is very much uh, excited by his uh, Leviathan. He names it Leviathan Koch, El Koch. And uh, he also, of course, as you say, names it the Missourium. And uh, it's a big sensation. Uh, people come and, and they see it. It was 15 feet high and 30 feet long was uh, how big just the skeleton was. So you assume a couple of extra feet for padding and scales and uh, a, a cool fin. Uh, it would have been quite a thing. And then it turns out after the people of St. Louis, the good people of St. Louis had seen it once, they didn't feel a need to come back and see it again. So ticket sales sloped off because even in 1840, the jug band. not a, you got to pay the jug band that eats into the profits. Uh, not a lot of people wanted to go to St. Louis, even if they heard there was a monster there. Go figure. Uh, then as now. And so he, he takes his skeleton on a global tour. And by global tour, that probably just means the East Coast and London, because London is where he fetches up uh, in 1841. Among the exhibitors are the great paleontologist, the early paleontologist, Richard Owen, who's the guy who digs up the first ever dinosaur. He's quite a guy. And he's by then running uh, the Natural History Department of the British Museum. He sees the Leviathan the Missourium, and says, that looks like a bunch of mastodons that you've put together. Yeah, that, 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 that's six mastodons you got there. <laughs> that's that's right. That's six mastodons in a trench coat. And Koch says, well, who can say how mastodons lived in the ancient world? <laughs> and Richard Owen says, I got a pretty good idea. I, it's kind of, kind, of, kind of my job to say that. I'm Richard yeah. Owen. And uh, uh, Koch says, put your money where your mouth is. So he ponies up two grand, uh, a thousand pounds, for the bones, 
and Koch uh, gets a an annuity out of it, so he gets another thousand dollars a year for life for his bones. Pretty clever plan. If you can get royalties from your six mastodons, you should you should exactly that clause put in your contract. And so Koch later in his publication says that he found Leviathan teeth near a bunch of mastodons. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. The Missourium theristocolyodon is a is a mastodon. Everyone knows this. And uh, it turns out that Owens doesn't even keep that name. So that's a sad ending. But, you know, once you're bit by the pretend fossil bug, uh, he goes off and he finds more uh, bones or other people find bones and they bring them to him. And it's uh, the bones of a mosasaur or a zooglodon. Uh, we're not necessarily sure what it is, but he says it's a hydrarchos. It's a 114-foot-long sea serpent. Yes, and there are other sources that say it uh, was made from a basilosaurus, mm-hmm. which was, the saurus may make you think that it's uh, a, a reptilian, but a, that's an early whale, because it's, it's right. the 1840s. Who knows from whales and reptiles? And also ammonite shells. So wow. <laughs> there's some, there some Lego going on with the hydrarchos. Exactly. The hydrarchos, maybe, maybe not so much. Anyway... People back and forth over Koch, but I think the general consensus is he wanted to be both a paleontologist and a man who ran an enormous museum full of monsters. And if that's a sin, Robin, if that's wrong, then you know what? Sign me up. Right. So so our task here is to make a game scenario out of this. So the most obviously game thing to do is uh, in your F20 game, there's a Hydrarchos and there's a Missourium. Why you know about Missouri in Westeros or Neverwinter Deep? I don't know. That's for you to figure out. But you could just treat these as as big old monsters. Um, and uh, one is a big old sea monster. One is a big old land monster. And uh, they have a bad attitude. And you you got to fight them. Uh, but uh, that's that's the easy answer. I guess the a, a more interesting thing is to have either a mystery that suggests uh, that uh, you know someone today. Uh, digs up a, a, a weirdo uh, skeleton and it uh, seems to actually be a hydrarchos or a uh, a, a mesurium, uh, unlike the other ones. You've, you've heard for 150 years that they're fake, but here's this new one. And what was Richard Owen doing veiling out the existence of these uh, these monsters? And, and why would that matter today? Why would that be a source of, uh, of danger, because, of course, the thing about fossils is uh, not inherently threatening. So how do we make these mysterious or, or threatening in some way? Yeah, I mean, there, there is the sort of threat of uh, time being unraveled. I think that the digging up of a genuine Missourium skeleton would be more in the sign of a sign that uh, deep time is coming awry, possibly in a Cthulhu mythosy way, possibly in a uh, Philip K. Dickian, the past has been invented way, little madness dossier possibilities for it. Um, I do like the idea, kind of, if you're in a madness dossier game already, of having, um, oh, paleontology uh, shifts as well. And uh, you can certainly have uh, any number of strange dinosaur bones that show up uh, in museum catalogs, and you've got to figure out uh, where these uh, history B dinosaurs are coming from. And of course, it's not impossible. You could be sucked into a reality quake, a subduction zone, and actually have to fight uh, one of these things. Or uh, the bones themselves 
could be the subject, I think, of a cult. Rather than being just a sign, you have a cult of esoterrorists or other reality shifters who figure if they can steal enough mammoth bones or mastodon bones from various museums and reassemble the, the Leviathan, then it will serve the job that the biblical Leviathan does of um, uh, emerging from the seas and threatening God, threatening creation. And so the notion that this cult is breaking into various paleontological exhibits for bones that, uh, while valuable, are not priceless, they're, they're, they're leaving, you know, uh, the Hope Diamond or whatever else uh, untouched, uh, that leads you to these uh, these weird cultists that are attempting to forcibly uh, shift the geology of the Earth uh, for magical reasons. Right. And the thing that we know about uh, mastodons is that uh, you can find some of them frozen. You can find mastodon flesh. And so uh, what if uh, we're uh, up in the Arctic or down in the Antarctic while those are still frozen and uh, we do some digging up and guess what? It's not just bones we find, but we find an actual uh, the flesh and blood remains of a Missourium or a Hydrocros. And then, of course, what do your weeds, weird scientists immediately do with that? Why well, they take the samples to the lab in an attempt to uh, uh, manufacture uh, something from the DNA. And in this case, uh, you might... Uh, it might be your, your old good old Jurassic Park uh, syndrome where they're actually trying to recreate uh, these creatures. And uh, since they are weird and possibly from another dimension, maybe you just got to put a few cells in a Petri dish and give them some food. And guess what? They don't follow the laws of nature. They're uh, the, the, the enemies of the divine. Uh, they can uh, grow out of the Petri dish and you've actually got the uh, your, your kaiju uh, rampaging across the earth. So you've uh, got that possibility. Or uh, you go a little sideways from that, and it's just, well, there's something about that DNA. It's not ordinary genetic material from our strand of evolution on this world, but rather it's extra-dimensional in nature and therefore uh, offers uh, weird properties that, uh, of course, any self-respecting scientist who's uh, left morality and reason behind is going to start injecting uh, into their veins. And uh, guess what? Uh, they turn into uh, humanoid uh, Hydrarchos, and uh, and then you've got your uh, your land of the lost uh, uh, guys with the big eyeballs uh, heading around the slee stacks. There's slee stacks. You've got slee stacks. Slee stack fossils. Uh, he was yeah. he was uh, he was ahead of his time. Was was Albert Koch? You've also got the possibility that these things are. Uh, evidence of uh, elder thing uh, playing with, uh, with with DNA and, and creating uh, earthly life. Maybe they took a bunch of alien DNA and cobbled it together to make a pretend monster in the same way that Albert Koch did, and that Albert Koch was somehow uh, channeling their research. And so, what you, the investigators, need to do rather than go fight these uh, these things in the distant past is figure out where Albert Koch. Uh, dug it up and where he got his ideas and is there an elder thing uh, artifact there in Missouri in Mastodon State Park, Missouri where, where Koch did his digs and so you you do a dig as well and you're surrounded by these skeletons which yeah maybe they come to life because of some sort of weird mythos magic or maybe they're imbued with Shoggoth uh, material or maybe you're just digging uh, around and you uncover some sort of horrific artifact that does indeed threaten to uh, unwind local time and local geology because that's how the, the the elder things built life forms is they would build a bunch of them and then just rewind the ones they didn't like and and restart them so uh, who knows what kind of horrible MacGuffin you might dig up well they're elder things they're going to have their life forms fight they they would have a gladiatorial ring between their creatures 
Right. And the ones that, you know, either won or were better at digging up creek beds would be the ones that would prevail. Or you just set your game in the 1830s and uh, you're going around up uh, rivers and whatnot. One of the things that uh, the Missouri Museum uh, allegedly had or the St. Louis Museum allegedly had was uh, the artifacts from Lewis and Clark's expedition up the Missouri and maybe Lewis and Clark. Uh, because remember, Thomas Jefferson told them in no uncertain terms to keep an eye out for giant ground sloths, megalonyxes, and also... Uh, mastodons and all the other things that Jefferson believed might still be alive out on the Great Plains. Maybe they brought back uh, something uh, magical or mystical about the ancient world, or maybe they brought back a mammoth foot and it's right there in the, in the basement of the Koch Museum and your 1830s Edgar Allan Poe era heroes have to go up the Missouri and fight a, a live, living, exciting Missourium that's uh, full of uh, Poe-esque anger at a world that uh, he strongly suspects he was created to make sport of, as opposed to uh, by decent uh, evolutionary processes or, or decent godly creation. So I, I think that you've got a, that uh, uh, Giants in the Earth eight, uh, 19th century America uh, occult game that you and I occasionally bandy about when we feel like not selling any copies. Um, <laughs> I, I think that let's put some actual Giants in that Earth, Rob. Well, yes, because Paul Bunyan's Blue Ox is described as a blue ox, but that's just people trying to, you know, come up with what it is. It could very easily be a, a Missourium uh, that has been, you know, misdescribed or some PR agent has gone, well, uh, people like a blue ox more than they would like this shovel This horrific monstrosity. Horror. Yeah. <laughs> with its tentacular trunk and razor sharp tusks that uh, spin around. And although that would be handy for chopping down trees, it I would say that for if chopping you got razor sharp yeah. spinning tusks. Yeah, so I think we're, we're going to have to squint at Paul Bunyan in, in this as well. So, uh, so I think we've come up with a, a number of different ways uh, to put this in uh, games uh, ranging from the horrific to the fanciful and can uh, therefore move on to this next time where surely we will not be required to make up anything weird out of history. Hey, 13th Age Adventurers. Whether your one unique thing is a robot hand or a deck of many futures. Whether you're friends with the Diabolist or frenemies with the Great Gold Worm. All are eventually drawn to one dark lure. The Underworld. The vast and mysterious realms that lie beneath the Dragon Empire. Deep within the Underworld lie adventure and treasure as well as disaster and death. But what is reward without risk? With the book of the Underworld designer Gareth Ryder Hanrahan reveals the underworld secrets for 13th age including the lands of the underworld the underland the kingdoms of the hollow realms and what lies within the deeps the mighty dwarven city of forge the domains of the silver folk elves the threats of malice the drow fort and the four kingdoms of the mechanical sun forgotten gods the gnome academy of magic monsters magic treasure and more for a limited time get 10% off in print or pdf at the Pelgrain store with a voucher code STUFFWORLD. You'll need the extra gold pieces for ropes and pulleys. That's the Book of the Underworld for 13th Age. Voucher code STUFFWORLD at PelgrainPress.com. The chinking of pickaxes, the accumulation of potsherds, the fetching pith helmets, 
adorning our assistance, welcome us once more to that most stratified of huts, the Archaeology Hut, where beloved Patreon backer Jake B. wants to know who was the Zacro Master and what were his seal stones. And of course, Robin, as you know, the Zacro Master debuts in Showcase Comics. I believe that he fought Aquaman. Um, uh, <laughs> and his seal stones were seals that uh, could turn you into stone. They were like... That does uh, sound lame enough to be an Aquaman villain. It does. Uh, it does. Yeah. But actually, uh, Zachro, the Zachro Master, was an artisan all the way back uh, in Minos. He was part of that good old-fashioned, really old Minoan civilization around uh, 1500 uh, BCE. Uh, uh, and for timescale-wise, that's like a thousand years before classical Greece. And uh, on the island of Minos, there is a a civilization which, when I was a, a wee scaper growing up, uh, basically there were a few artifacts and people said, Minos, it's just a mystery. We know nothing about it. But I gather there's been uh, many decades of scholarship and people have figured out stuff about Minos to the point where they can go, yeah, there's this one particular guy who made these particularly interesting seal stones around this town of Zakros, which had a, a palace uh, to which they have assigned the same name. And it turns out that the idea of uh, having a, a a signet or device that you stick into wax as your uh, signature slash uh, password security device is really old. It goes all the way back at least as far as Minos. And uh, they've now recovered a whole lot of these uh, seal stones, which are sort of amulet-sized uh, gems or pieces of metal with elaborate reverse sculptures in them and so that when you punch them into hot wax you get an image of some kind and these are known uh, throughout Minos but the uh, this one particular artisan made uh, especially fanciful things or things that we as the uh, uh, speakers on a podcast of the the weird and esoteric uh, find interesting and so uh, the typical designs would be uh, goddesses or altars or reeds or lions. And of course, this is Minos, so there's bulls, and there's even images of uh, young people jumping over the bulls, which of course was the dangerous version of rodeo that they had. Uh, and back in Minos, that might have been the first rodeo. You never know. Yeah, it could have been. People in people in ancient Crete might have said, this is in fact our first rodeo. Yes. <laughs> and and after you get gored by a bull, you might go, you know, it's also my, my last rodeo. But the at any rate, road, I'm not doing that again. Yeah. And and the, the peculiar thing, I'm just a, you know, an obscure country veterinarian, Ken, but it's weird to me that uh, you always see either the uh, the gems or signets themselves, which, of course, are reverse images. And then you mm. will see drawings that are uh, meant to sort of reproduce what the thing is supposed to look like. But why? Uh, regardless of what culture it is that has this thing that you stick into wax, why you never see models made from wax so you see what the actual thing is supposed to look like. Uh, but I, I guess that is that's too much to ask. No, you can't. You can't be. You can't be sticking wax uh, into your into your museum, Robin. Then you'd have some sort of wax museum, and that's that's a that's ludicrous a whole, idea. That's a whole other genre. Exactly. Paris Hilton could show up. Things could go sideways. Uh, the Zacro Master, uh, as I guess you were alluding uh, with your mention of the conventional seal designs of other parts of Minoan Crete, did not so much embrace the conventional as he embraced crazy images that were exciting and fun and uh, combined things like birds and ladies or... Um, Birds and weird squiggles or two birds sort of 
mushed up together uh, around a tree or around a swiggly line. Plus minotaurs. He draws minotaurs or at least things that look pretty minotaury and uh, various kinds of things that are gorgons. Uh, he's got a, a winged goat. Lots of uh, good stuff going on there. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's quite the guy. And in fact, the earliest uh, archaeologists who studied him thought that in so many words, he was insane. There was an, an archaeologist named Gill who, who literally said the Zachromaster was a madman, encouraged <laughs> by the town folk in the belief <laughs> that the seal stones from his hand would have an extra touch of the supernatural. That was back when archaeologists were just as free to make things up as podcasters. And just, just, yeah, it was, it was a beautiful time. And then in 1970, after the rest of art also became crazy, an art historian named John Boardman said, maybe he was just really good at drawing monsters and people liked that. What do you think? Um, uh, he's, he's, he still alludes to Hieronymus Bosch. He says that uh, the Zachro master created an idiom that uh, extends out of Greek art that is not uh, a purely of Greek art. People have suggested because Zachros is at the very uh, east end of Crete that maybe he was influenced by uh, people from uh, the Hittite Empire or even from Cyprus or from uh, uh, the Phoenicians uh, might have been uh, filtering over there by then. It's a little early for the Phoenicians, but it's not. Uh, plenty of people on Cyprus are carving all manner of weird animal things. And of course, the Hittites were bananas for crazy animal bits. And and people turning into animals and partial animals uh, and animal people and people animals uh, go back to the very first cave paintings. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a, a hallmark of uh, shamanic belief around, uh, around the world, uh, turning into an animal and then turning back. So this... Uh, could also lead us as we're trying to come up with uh, something interesting for the uh, to happen to the characters in ancient Minos uh, that uh, there is some sort of chimerical cult where uh, clearly because there are uh, more large-breasted bird women in the uh, images than anything else this is clearly the main uh, goddess of this uh, transformational cult but there are uh, presumed or great spirit i suppose if people are actually literally uh, drawing on shamanic practice and therefore there are probably other lesser uh beings so perhaps you know the the uh the lion people could be a second and then you've got the various uh one-offs the uh the gorgon the the, the winged humanoids uh look kind of like i don't want to you know, go for the obvious here, but they look kind of like a Bayaki to me. And there are several of those minotaurs that make me stroke my chin and say, for a minotaur, this looks an awfully lot like a hound of Tindalos. So yeah. you could, in fact, especially be... with the long prehensile tongue extruding out of one of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When I think of minotaurs, <laughs> I do not think of a long prehensile yeah, tongue. Yeah. You don't, you don't really hear the part. Maybe it was cut out of the myths for being creepy, but you don't really hear the part where the minotaur just licked Theseus. A lot. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> uh, the, the next question should be, well, if this is, uh, you know, maybe the fact that uh, the rest of the island just has, well, you know what, we're just going to have a bull cult. Uh, we're going to tell ourselves that these things that we found in the maze, there's just a bull man. That's all there was to it. And we're going to make a nice safe version of that story. Uh, but um, you could be the uh, people from regular Minos heading over to Zachros to find out uh, what is exactly going on with their uh, their cult heading down. Uh, perhaps into a maze of quarters in a subterranean environment and encountering a variety of horrors that you have to uh, dispatch on your way to uh, closing whatever uh, doorway to uh, the underworld or uh, a yugoth 
that uh, might happen to be down there. I, I don't know, Robin. I think that adventuring inside some sort of su- subterranean labyrinth, that's a little recondite, isn't it? I mean, who's going to yeah, really... That'll, that'll never I mean, catch on. We, we yeah. throw out ideas that I think everyone wants to play, like Edgar Allan Poe Cowboys investigating Lewis and Clark, but some sort of monsters in a maze, dungeon crawling? With an evil I don't crawl? get it. Yeah. No, not right, going to happen. Lame. Yeah. But still... That said, um, even if you don't want to play a 14th century or 16th century BC adventure, you've got all these, uh, bird ladies, uh, that are very much part of, uh, and, and as you say, sort of what the Zachro master, uh, is really into bird ladies, very concerned with. And I think you can certainly, uh, that, that makes a, a fine sort of a, a secret race. You get a little, uh, unpleasant profession of Jonathan Hoag in there where the, 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 the cult of the bird is creeping around in the shadow universe and trying to peek through our mirrors at us. Uh, the mirror issue could be why so many of the Zachro Masters' works are uh, designed to be perfectly symmetrical, uh, that he's uh, telling us something about the mirrors, uh, and then he puts asymmetry into some of his designs, especially the later ones, possibly indicating he's figured out a way to, to defeat the mirror uh, bird ladies. And so you, as uh investigators in the 30s or the 60s or the now um as you start being plagued by bird ladies uh jumping at you from from the seeming safety of your mirror uh have to go to crete and either dig up the zacro master's workshop and find uh the magic stones that he that he used to figure out uh, magical asymmetry or you have to raid i don't know let's say a big museum in berlin in the 1930s that is being proudly exhibited by the Ananerba as proof of aryan culture in ancient crete and so uh you have to not only strike a blow for correct ascription of ancient crete but also uh steal yourself some magic asymmetry stones and i think that's uh, a fun thing and then you can just dig through the various Zachromaster monsters for things that emerge uh to fight you uh either on your way to Berlin or once you're in Berlin where the Ananerba magicians are as per their usual screwing everything up. Right. Because each uh image on each seal stone which you then put into wax is essentially equivalent to a an extremely elaborate in this case a quite beguiling and and well executed pictogram so it could well be that you want to just have a cool new variation on the summoning ritual and what that looks like visually right we're getting pretty tired of standing around in a circle around a pentacle with candles and stuff well you need to have uh you know x number of blobs of wax and certainly the what you use to make that wax is probably very important. And uh, uh, possibly some of the things that go in there require you to perform acts of evil. I don't want to get too specific about that. But uh, whatever is in the wax, that's probably part of it uh, has a MacGuffin-y aspect to it. But then finally, you need to know which seal stones to plunge into the wax in which order to create the ancient uh, high Minoan a sentence that you require in order to uh, summon a bird lady or a hound of Tindalos or a Bayaki or, or whatever it is, so that you've uh, got a cool new gloss on a summoning ritual and a whole bunch of stages that you need to go through to get it. And it's like, well, you know, do I put two bird ladies uh, in a row and do I put this bird lady and then that other bird lady? But I think we've got a cool sort of structure and, and what the surface is on that you, uh, what kind of altar that you have that you're uh, pressing the seal stones down into the wax. That also seems uh, a very suggestive and another thing that the, uh, both the villains and the heroes will have to go and look up in a library somewhere and therefore can have 
a reason to have a, a shootout in the library, which, uh, you know, is essential for this sort of uh, narrative. Exactly. Well, I think once we've got uh, the bullets uh, flying on the shelves and uh, disrupting the uh, the Dewey Decimal System, it's uh, time for us to uh, see what uh, lurks on the other side of the Infernal Stacks. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Stop this podcast from joining the Fossil Record by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Andrew Dacey. Volpine. Derek Yates. Taylor Harless. And Gwendolyn Schmidt. The bunting on the hustings, the paper hats tossed in the air with odd slogans on them, the horse shouting, the pontificators pontificating. Yes, Robin, once more, it's time for that quadrennial festival known as the Politics Hut. And beloved Patreon backer Brian Malcolm issues a plaintive-sounding request. He says... The two of you seem to have very different political views and yet remain able to work together professionally, as well as being able to have congenial discussions on a wide range of subjects, including politics. Do you have any tips or secrets that you can share with the rest of us who struggle to maintain bipartisan relationships? Robin, do you enjoy other bipartisan relationships uh, than me from which you can generalize? Uh, or is it just be friends with Ken Hyde and everything is delightful? Well, the, the number one tip I would give is be from different countries, <laughs> right? Because it's not like Ken is a Republican and I'm a Democrat. Ken is a Republican and I, I'm not a partisan. I don't have a right. single political party in Canada that I always uh, vote with. I do not identify myself with them and have no emotional attachment I have to the two parties I oscillate between is one of uh, varied frustration with both of them. And uh, when I head to the ballot box, I'm voting against the right. But are you going to hear a uh, frenzied personal defense of either the, the liberals or the NDP from me? No, you are, are not. I see them as utilitarian uh, organizations toward the end of not making things worse. <laughs> Quasi-utilitarian at best. Uh, yes. Well, it's which, which is more utilitarian in this particular election right. than the other. And sometimes mm -hmm. the fact that two of them exist and there's only one right-wing party uh, is inherently non-utilitarian because uh, at different times in our recent history, they have uh, split the left and center-left vote and uh, things get 
in my opinion, uh, worse. And so that is uh, part of it. But I think also, can we both do share a number of assumptions, if not uh, politics. And one of those is that you can never really convince anybody of anything. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a great line, and I think people ascribe it to Chesterton, but I'm pretty sure it's older than that, that it is impossible to reason someone out of something they were never reasoned into. People believe things because of a whole conjuries of reasons. Uh, I guess Jonathan Haidt is the guy who knows the most about why people believe things politically. And even he is smart enough to know that he barely has any idea. And that just makes both sides mad at him. So people who believe that if you just deliver a, a West Wing speech, everything will fix itself. You would have thought that literally picking up any history book at random and opening it would have disabused you of that notion. But it seems to be a, uh, a common uh, ailment. And so people are giving their West Wing speech and the other person is not responding like Alan Alda. And then they're angry because they watched West Wing now for no reason, uh, which would make anyone angry, I guess. Um, another, I think, advantage that you and I both have is that we are uh, old enough to have seen most of all of this before in one or another version and are both well read enough to know that most of this has, in fact, already happened. Even the specific fun examples that are going on right now, uh, maybe not, but uh, things very much like that. And so uh, we have a, a degree of distance from it. I won't say ironic detachment. That is more of a Gen X thing. I don't think it's necessarily universal to just being uh, over 40, but I think it uh, it doesn't hurt. Um, and then the other thing, I think, temperamentally, uh, in terms of my beliefs, is that one of the core reasons that I am a conservative is that I believe that politics is, in fact, not everything. And the less of a thing you make it, the better you're doing uh, as a society and as a person. So if uh, one of my friends politically disagrees with me, that's just a relatively tiny portion of their life that I can generally ignore because they're my friend for some other reason because of their great professional gifts or their uh, jovial demeanor or their capacity for buying drinks, whatever it happens to be, that is not altered one way or the other by uh, the fact that they would vote a different way from me, or in the case of my communist friends, angrily demand that the system be torn down. They generally do that for about five minutes. It's very amusing. And then we move on to whatever it is we're actually friends over. I don't think it's the end all and be all of life. I don't conduct my life as though it is. And so therefore, I'm more than happy to engage with people in the plenitude of areas that we do have in common rather than pick at the scab of the area that we don't have in common. Um, it's just rude to bring up things people don't want to talk about anyway. And I try not to be uh, rude to my friends. Now there are certainly uh, areas it, it, and it also helps that we are both hit heterodox in our versions of, of what we have. So I think there would have been a serious strain if you'd put on the red hat and were angrily justifying uh, everything that the, that the Trump regime is up to, that that might have been too much to to cross, just as uh, someone who uh, wants to spend a lot of time uh, justifying or denying the the Uyghur genocide uh, <laughs> currently being conducted uh, in China uh, would be, I, I would find certain views hard to remain friends with, right? If someone shows up at the door wearing a, a swastika or a hammer and sickle or some other symbol of oppressive, violent, uh, murderous authoritarianism and wants to keep jawboning about that, uh, that would be difficult. And there's also the question of how uh, you conduct yourselves and whether uh, you are uh, harming or bullying people online with your beliefs, whatever they are. There's no, there's no ideology, including this 
completely centrist one that you cannot wield abusively and be uh, kind of crummy to other people and create a public relations. Yeah, people who want to be a jerk want to be a jerk and their politics is the one of the lenses through which they're a jerk. It's not that one specific political belief ineluctably leads you to being a giant pain in the tail. Yeah, there's even people I agree with whose (laughs) social media expression of things that I sort of agree with causes a lot of eye rolling. Yes. Well, (laughs) this this is true on both sides of the generic politics hut. I can promise you that. And so in a way, I guess it's sort of a a cop out to say to Brian Malcolm, the best way to remain friends with differing politics is to not discuss your politics. I mean, I literally have a mixed marriage. My wife is a Democrat. And back when we were younger and firier, we used to have knockdown drag out political arguments. I think mostly for the uh, making up more than for the actual belief that we were going to convince the other one to uh, support whichever ideological extreme we were holding up as the, as the banner. I think that being married to someone of, of an opposite political alignment produces at the very least, or one hopes it does, an ability to believe that a person who, uh, thinks differently than you in this area is not, uh, some kind of inhuman monster, but in fact is drawing on their own sets of experiences and paradigms and ways of understanding the world. And that by getting to know why, uh, your wife or husband or good friend think X, you have at the very least taught yourself to put up with them. And also you may indeed have taught yourself a little something about your fellow citizens, which is not, not necessarily knowledge that you've wasted. Yeah. So it can be very useful embracing to get an intelligent person's version of another point of view, not to convert them to your point of view, but in order to uh, perhaps quietly uh, sharpen your own talking points when dumber people say the same things <laughs> more dumbly. So there are things that uh, you will say, and I'm sure it's re- the reverse is true as well, where I don't argue you out of them, but I make a little note of, oh, well, there's there's a logical fallacy there. And because the point of our conversation is never to, uh, you know, we're not on crossfire. And certainly on, on this show, uh, if anything, I downplay my uh, personal politics, because in a way, uh, they're, uh, they're somewhat bleak. Yeah, well, <laughs> Nobody wants and, to hear and it. I think that's another thing that you and I both have in common is that our politics are, are bleak. And mine uh, comes from a place of Calvinism. Yours come, of course, from the Wendigo. So, you know, I, I think that there's a temperamental commonality that you and I share that I think, again, and, and uh, not to uh, bang that drum, sort of transcends the specific quotidian political uh, ways that we express that that common philosophy or that common understanding of how the world operates. So again, lots of stuff in common, very few things not in common. You've only got a limited amount of time in this earth. Maybe stick to the things that will make you and your friend happy as opposed to the things that make you and your friend mad as a wet hen. And the other side of you can never convince anybody of anything is that sometimes people people's identifications culturally and the different policy prescriptions that they believe in can radically shift. Sometimes that happens for the worse, uh, sometimes for the better, uh, but uh, that's not something that you can make happen. That's part of a broader perspective. So what the average Republican believes, for example, about trade and their uh, relationship uh, with uh, Russia and their relationship with uh, NATO has, uh, when you poll uh, people, uh, radically altered in the last four years and that uh, suggests from the level of debate and conversation and what people want to identify with can suddenly turn on a dime. But that, again, is not something that you're going to accomplish 
uh, sending somebody links or, you know, having a, having a beer with, and maybe when that happens, it'll won't be for the better anyway, who knows? But yeah. We've seen, and also a radical shift in uh, U.S. public opinion this year over the salience of uh, police brutality as suddenly there's been a huge shift in what people regard uh, in that. And that's part of what they're seeing on their television. But that's driven by an event that's not driven by their friends shouting at them for the last six years. Yeah, the people do shift their beliefs, but again, they shift them for the same reasons that they got them in the first place, which is to say not as the result of an Aaron Sorkin speech. The way that you understand the world changes as the world changes and things that seemed like a great idea in 1991 may seem like a less great idea 30 years later when you say, oh, that policy that had a, a very real and very important upside also had a ginormous downside that was either downplayed by me and other proponents of it or was not even apparent and then sort of just blew up on us. And we we're like, goodness me, there's a shocker. Or you may have made a bet. You may have said in 1991, granting most favored uh, nation status to China will draw them into the world community and make them a, a respectable player. And it turns out, oh, no, it didn't do that. So you, you can't necessarily, if you keep doubling down on something when it is demonstrably not happened, maybe that's an ideological commitment. Maybe that's another thing. But I think that shifting your beliefs about what would happen when it doesn't happen you know, people do that not as not as often maybe as you or I might like, Robin, but it does happen. And again, it doesn't happen because uh, they were yelled at uh, constantly on social media. That actually, to the extent we know anything about how people think, makes them less likely to change their mind uh, when they're being hectored, uh, especially by people who they only know uh, through that uh, channel, as opposed to as boon companions and beloved uh, collaborators. Right. To, to the extent that people do alter their minds in response to uh, argument, they do so within the group. So if you say, as fellow uh, members of the cult of Dagon, uh, we obviously both believe that uh, the, the fisheries must be protected. The person uh, you're talking to may have gone in there going, no, we must overfish. And then it's, but when you invoke, well, we both worship Dagon, that may trigger the other person. Oh, you're right. As Dagonites, we're, we're a fish preservationist. So you might get uh, that a little, but generally, I don't know about you, but uh, I've maybe changed a few people's presentation by one to three percent sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess just to close out, especially right now, I realize in the U.S. that the stakes are extraordinarily high. And uh, I can certainly see why people, uh, both of whom are heavily identified with different sides, are uh, going to want to preserve their friendships by not talking about it for uh, a certain amount of time. And part of my effort when talking to my American friends is to keep reminding myself that I'm trying not to care that much about what happens in America <laughs> because I have no control or influence over it. I don't live there. I care about my American friends, uh, but it ultimately is is uh, nothing that my uh, votes or money or participation will uh, will address. Well, and uh, Robin is a Republican in Chicago. You were in the same boat. <laughs> right. Neither of us will have any influence on the election whatsoever. And so uh, tonight I'm going to demonstrate that uh, by watching the first Biden-Trump debate. Uh, and on that <laughs> note, it's time for us to usher into a hopefully much less orange final segment.
Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the Internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. It's not much more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs, up past the uh, portrait of the King Salamander, who's still uh, happily there ensconced uh, in the frame of his painting, and then in on uh, to meet with the uh, consulting occultist. And this time we're bringing along beloved Patreon backer Elias Helfer, who uh, heard an episode of the Imaginary Worlds podcast, but just didn't get quite enough out of it and wants us to talk more, and by us I mean uh, the consulting occultist, and by the consulting occultist I mean Ken, to talk more about Pamela Coleman-Smith, who is the illustrator who created the iconic illustrations for the uh, Rider Waite uh, tarot deck. Uh, and she did that in 1909, but uh, she has a long uh, career as, as an artist in various fields that uh, starts before then, ends after then, and uh, uh, she herself, of course, uh, is an occultist. She uh, she joins the Golden Dawn. Uh, but that's not the beginning of her story. Uh, Ken, I believe the beginning of her story begins with that least exciting of mystical and occult beliefs, Swedenborgianism. Exactly. Uh, she is raised as a Swedenborgian by her parents. Uh, her parents were Charles Edward Smith. His father was the mayor of Brooklyn, was a big creator of infrastructure, uh, he ran the first gas company in New York. He was a, a big wheeler and dealer. And Charles Edward Smith's wife, Corinne Coleman, who was the sister of the painter Samuel Coleman, who was a, a scion of the uh, Hudson Valley School and a, and a great uh, influence. Uh, all the Colemans and all the Smiths were artists and patrons of the art. Colemans and Smiths go back to uh, the, the Mayflower or just after. They're both old American stock. And uh, Pamela Coleman Smith was, despite that, born in London. So a lot of people, including your Wikispedia, call her a British artist. And just because she was born in Britain, did most of her work in Britain, lived in Britain her almost her entire life, and died in Britain, I think we all agree that makes her an American artist, Robin. Do we have a recording of her voice? Because I think uh, how she pronounced certain words would tell us which she is. Well, that leads us to, I guess, the uh, the questionable, the, 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 the thing that people stroke their chins thoughtfully about in Ray Pamela Coleman Smith, which is that she was very much a person who enjoyed playing uh, parts and she enjoyed playing the outsider. So for example, when uh, someone met her, uh, I think it was, uh, it wasn't Stieglitz, but it was one of Stieglitz's arty friends met her in New York. He thought she was Japanese. And then she just played into being Japanese whenever she was around this guy. 
and wore kimonos and things like that. Uh, she was not Japanese. She was American. Another thing that happened is that her father got a job in Jamaica. They moved to Jamaica in 1889 when she was a teenager uh, and lived there uh, until 1893. So she spent a, a good long a period of her adolescence in Jamaica and was running around being very interested in Jamaican culture and Jamaican folk life and things like that to the extent that uh, when she came back to New York, she published the first of her collections of Jamaican folk tales, uh, Anansi tales and uh, illustrated them herself. I think it's still in print. It's certainly still available. And she began to professionally perform them in Jamaican dialect. And we don't, have any evidence that she used blackface at all, but she was uh, dark-complected already, uh, certainly dressed like a Jamaican um, uh, a woman in, in photographs. Her Wikipedia picture is clearly her in West African or, or West Indian uh, garb. And in her, uh, her story sessions, which were performed professionally among uh, the audience, was Mark Twain, who thought it was hilarious. We can maybe say that it is not that unlike a minstrel show. And so you will have people even now on the Internet say, oh, her mother was Jamaican. That's not true. Her mother was an American. She just got really into Jamaican culture and sort of adopted it. I think maybe thinking of her as Jamaican version of an otaku is maybe a nicer way to put it. Um, she just gets uh, fascinated and uh, becomes a big raving fangirl of, of Jamaican culture. But, you know, that is a that is a problematic area for people who find minstreling not cool. But uh, fortunately, she had more going on than that. Uh, she was, as I said, an accomplished writer and an even more accomplished artist. She studied at the Pratt School in Brooklyn, which became a, a big and very important uh, art school. She never graduated from there because her parents became sick and then died. And so she moved to London. And when she moved to London, she hooked up with the Lyceum Theater because she was doing uh, set designs. She was working in the little theaters uh, companies in London. She was doing costume design, lots of other stuff that artists get into on the stage and became fast friends with uh, Henry Irving and Ellen Terry, the, the great actress of the Lyceum, uh, who nicknamed uh, Pamela Coleman Smith Pixie. So if you uh, think Pamela Coleman is too uh, stodgy, you can just call her Pixie. And she loved that. And of course, Bram Stoker. And uh, so she became best buddies with all of them, uh, set up a salon very rapidly in London where uh, all manner of writers, artists and bohemians would gather. Uh, she became friends with G.K. Chesterton at those salons, uh, friends with w uh, William Butler Yeats. Uh, she illustrated his poems. And uh, he is the guy that recruited her into the Golden Dawn. So by this time, her Swedenborgian past has given way to a lot of different uh, beliefs, Jamaican obia, um, the Golden Dawn ritual magic, anything uh, interesting uh, she uh, latched onto and and took into uh, herself. And when she's you could almost say she's a she's a karma chameleon who comes and goes. Exactly. You could say that she has uh, some sort of uh, shape shifting karma. Um, she was a synesthetic. Her paintings, she said, were the result of the music that she heard. She merely painted what the music revealed to her, what she saw when she heard the, the music. Um, she was a lifelong uh, suffragist. She believed in votes for women, uh, designed posters for them, uh, hung out with, uh, with, with radical suffragists of all sorts. Uh, was very much a part of that scene. Uh, there is no evidence that I've found that she learned suffragutsu, but 
you can be certain that uh, in any Pamela Coleman Smith adventure I run, she's uh, able to flip a man over her back and keep on walking. Uh, in 1907, uh, speaking of flipping a man over on his back, she exhibited in Alfred Stieglitz's gallery. Uh, Stieglitz was a uh, d- devoted to the photographic arts and said only photography is the real art. And Pamela Coleman Smith said, how about this art? And Stieglitz said, all right, that that's really good. So that's why a lot of her art is now in the Stieglitz O'Keefe collection is because Stieglitz was so enraptured by it that he took photographs of the art so that he could hang that in his gallery and still say, oh, this is photographs. Then hope that no one brought up that it was photographs of paintings. So uh, this is sort of the the high moment of her career. She's back and forth between London and New York. Uh, being artist. And in 1909, she's hired by her buddy, Arthur Edward Waite, uh, who she again met in the Golden Dawn. Uh, she by then has left the Golden Dawn when it blew up. She's followed Waite on to one of the fringe Golden Dawns. And Waite says, I'm doing a tarot deck. Uh, how about you draw it? And they together examine the Solabuska deck, the a deck from the 15th century that's uh, one of the few decks that has uh, illustrations for the minor arcana. And uh, wait, apparently we don't have the original drafts. We don't have the working notes. We don't know enough about it. Uh, but wait, apparently gave her very specific magical and symbolic guidance for the major arcana, for the trumps. But for the minor arcana, he just said, well, this is what the card means. Go for it. And Pamela Coleman Smith uh, very early on said, Every card should uh, show a person and and you should be able to identify that person's emotional and uh, symbolic state by their actions. And and, and that so, is great art order design for anybody <laughs> who's writing. So first of all, if I, I relate to weight going, oh, I have detailed descriptions for this first half and then the rest of. Uh, You'll think of something. Yep. Uh, anybody who's ever written up yellow descriptions for uh, for an art order has uh, can relate to that. But also the idea of having uh, people in every shot is, I think, part of what makes these illustrations so beguiling and so classic. That's partly the uh, her her line, uh, the Art Nouveau uh, style, uh, but also uh, every one of them tells an emotional story. It has a person in it. It's not just an abstraction. And I think that's why people, uh, people come back to that deck because a, it seems kind of old timey and like all old timey seeming things in the occult, it was invented around a hundred years ago, (laughs) but also just, it has that emotional sense because there are people having uh, emotions. And I, and I think a lot of it is also, I mean, yes, all props to my man, Arthur Edward Waite for uh, imbuing the deck with that rich, a heady brew of golden dawn symbolism, but also uh, Pamela Coleman Smith is, and if you've seen any of her other art, uh, she's very good at expressing these sorts of unwordable emotions and feelings and beliefs and structures pictorially. And a lot of great art, uh, you have to think about it and you, and you ponder it. You think, mm, goodness, what is that uh, off white canvas doing? What are, what is it saying? With Pamela Coleman-Smith, you know what it's saying, and it is saying it very directly and forthrightly, uh, but also with uh, restraint and elegance and style and balance and symmetry. You can find sort of pages of her just laying out her artistic principles, and all of those uh, she embodied almost quite literally in uh, the designs for the for the tarot. And in fact, uh, many tarot people now call it the Waite-Smith tarot, and they leave writer out of it because he was just the publisher, Robin. 
And uh, publishers, as we all know, are a blot upon the land. <laughs> so anyway, after that moment, she did the whole tarot for a flat fee. Again, a thing that we can identify with. Got no royalties after it became by far the best-selling tarot ever. Well, it's it's not like she had a, a mastodon to get royalties from. No, she she yeah she if she'd had a mastodon, then we'd be talking. No, she only has the single most iconic and evocative image uh, in the Western occult since the frickin' pyramids. Uh, but yeah, that's fine. Anyway, uh, she goes on with her life. Uh, she illustrates Lair of the White Worm for her buddy Bram Stoker. And then, uh, possibly as a consequence of having to read the Lair of the White Worm, converts to Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she converts to Catholicism also in 1911. So uh, after drawing the Lair of the White Worm, that's her last hurrah of pagan whoop-de-doo nonsense. And uh, she f- flees into the arms of Mother Church, or knowing Pixie waltzes and tap dances into the arms of Mother Church. There is perhaps a, a paper, if not another segment, about <laughs> how many occultists go through so many permutations in their career. But when they when they settle down, it's, it's good old Catholicism. Well, I mean, yeah, we, we don't have time to get into it now. But as a as a man who went to Catholic high school as a Protestant... I can tell you that I get it. Anyway, uh, she inherits some money from an uncle. She moves to an artist's colony in Cornwall and then opens up uh, nearby a vacation home for Catholic priests. And that becomes her uh, sort of her career after uh, the art begins to taper off. Because, again, Art Nouveau is out. She is not interested in or capable of uh, moving uh, into uh, modernism of any kind. She continues to run the vacation home with her longtime uh, female companion. Uh, again, uh, people on the internet speculate that Pamela Coleman Smith, who was never ever married, never ever had a boyfriend, hung around with a lot of radical, uh, certainly radical for the time, uh, lesbians. Uh, Edith Craig uh, among them was good friends with them. People say maybe she had a girlfriend, maybe her friend who helped her run the vacation home for Catholic priests was her was her lover. But obviously, you're running a vacation home for Catholic priests. You can't really just say and also. So uh, that remains decorously unknown. But I think uh, unlike the Jamaicanness, we can probably say, yeah, I think so. It wouldn't be a giant leap. Sadly, vacation homes for Catholic priests then is now not exactly a pot of gold. Uh, she gets uh, poorer and less uh, well-known, and she dies in a different town in Cornwall in 1951 and is buried in an unmarked grave. And despite the number of people, some of them quite intent on finding Pamela Coleman Smith, uh, they can't do it. Um, and so uh, that was the, the sad end of a great artist and a great woman and a great American. Uh, well, uh, that note could not possibly be uh, more conclusive, but I guess we still have to do the bit where we indicate uh, how she can appear in your games. Uh, she's hanging around with Bram Stoker. So if you are doing anything uh, 1890s-ish, if you're doing a backstory for Knight's Black Agents, uh, she is obviously uh, in the swim of that. And uh, there uh, is something presumably that she learns from her uh, dealings with uh, British intelligence that then inform uh, the uh, tarot deck. And then, and then, uh, then inform the decision to stay on Catholic holy ground for the rest of her life. Yes. Hmm, yeah, that, that <laughs> is uh, somewhat. Uh, no one's going to invite Dracula to that retirement home, right? So nope. that can then suggest some sort of a relationship between uh, vampires and British intelligence and the and the tarot, uh, which you could uh, carry through for a, a tarot-themed series of uh, modern uh, Knights Black Agents Dracula dossier uh, adventures. Um, and 
uh, also because she's active uh, in the 1890s. It's a little too soon to get her uh, into the uh, into the Yellow King, but you could uh, you could bend that uh, a, a little bit, or at least uh, you can meet up with Yates and so forth, and uh, uh, you know Pixie can show up if you uh, advance the timeline a little. Also, uh, it, since she's in New York in 1893, going to art school in Brooklyn. There is every chance in the world that she runs professionally across our buddy, Robert W. Chambers, who doesn't mention her. She doesn't mention him, but she's a party girl and a bohemian, and she enjoys uh, hanging around with with uh, fun people who I think we can say in 1893, Robert W. Chambers was because uh, he's just come back from Paris and he's got the the glamour of foreign parts on him. So if you're looking for a backstory in your Yellow King uh, universe, perhaps uh, it is Pamela Coleman Smith who tosses off the first yellow sign designed in the world of our uh, timeline. And so uh, it's the Pamela Coleman Smith yellow sign that is uh, lurking behind everything. And you have to dig into her past either in a this is normal now uh, setting or in any of the timelines. I, I think none of your timelines are so lost to reason as to not have Pamela Coleman Smith in them. Um, and you could certainly uh, do a timeline where the tarot and uh, Carcosa are intertwined and the, uh, the deck has the Hyades and, and Aldebaran. Right. And it's then. weird. This deck has two Queens in it, Robin. What's going on with that? Mm, yeah. What's up mm. with that? Uh, well, uh, now that we've, uh, found uh, ways to, uh, make, uh, her, uh, long and involved life gameable, it's time for us to make this podcast less long, less involved, but nonetheless, a show that will be back a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from the death card alongside such prophetic backers as Jacob Ansari. Jamie Twine. Mark Galliotti. Rafe Ball. And Sean Hoyle. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Subtweet your players with our latest design. The players are the red herring. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time. And once again, we will talk about stuff.